There's something to be said for failure and quick failure and quick feedback. And additive manufacturing really allows for that. So my advice for a product developer is get it out there because it's possible that you know a person a city over, a country over in an adjacent market may have some really interesting insights for you. And until you share it, you're not gonna have the opportunity to grow from that. Welcome to the Masters of Engineering podcast. We take a look at cool products, the people who develop them and how they do it. I'm your host, John Hirschstick, and I've spent my entire life building CAD systems. The best part of my job is that I get to meet some of the most innovative engineers and manufacturers in the whole world. And in this podcast, you get to meet them too. My guest today builds 3D printers, but not just any 3D printer, very special 3D printers that I first discovered because of the size of them, which is really big. Um, bigger than probably any 3D printer that most non-professionals have seen and bigger than anyone you'd imagine being able to get your hands on personally. She also has a ton of other interesting things in her life story, including the Air National Guard and some other cool things we're going to get to. And so with that, I'd like to welcome my guest today, Samantha Snabs. She is the co-founder and Catalyst at Re3D. Samantha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. We're um, such big fans of yours, all the way going back to when we were uh, at NASA and, and getting to hang out at Maker Fairs. And I'm just um, honored to chat with you in the community as, as you continue to shape not just the maker culture, but um, engineering and manufacturing worldwide. Oh, wow. Well, that's that's really kind of you to say, uh, <laughs> Samantha. Um, and uh, uh, it's really nice. There's nothing more gratifying to me than to hear that from people like you. So uh, tell us more about the Gigabot is, by my guess, you know, like, I mean, it looks like huge, but how big is it? Yeah. So um, the one you saw is actually our, um, we call it the tiny one now, the little guy. Um, oh, it starts at... <laughs> Yeah, two foot cubed, um, which is about 600 millimeters in the build platform and takes up a little bit more space than that, but um, just fits through usually a door most times and kind of comes up to your waist-ish just for reference. This week, the Air Force had contracted us to make a six foot tall version. So Gigabot is our baby. Then we have made um, Terabot. And now, um, as of this week, we released Exabot, uh, which is a monster. And we actually built two Exabots in parallel and put a Gigabot in front of them for reference. And yeah, it's pretty impressive. So the team does like uh, pull-ups on the Exabot frame. It's so big. Now, wait, you said a two-foot build volume in your baby Gigabot. <laughs> So, but the machine, yeah. the machine is much bigger than two feet. Uh, not much bigger. I mean, it's not that you've, but you know, it looks like it's, you know, twice that big when you just sort of see it across the room. And so why build bigger 3D printers? What got you started on that journey? You know, what's interesting is um, at the core of Ray3D, we are a social enterprise. So we're a spinoff of Engineers Without Borders, NASA Johnson Space Center. And back in, you know, really like 29 to 2012, as the shuttle program was ending, we had the privilege to travel around the world and saw some common themes. And it was high unemployment, um, frustration on the dependence of aid outside groups like ourselves and goods that had to be imported with long and unsustainable logistical long tails and a lot of plastic waste. And more importantly, people were really brilliant that we met and self-sufficient. So, you know, we started talking about what would it look like if people that we met that were so brilliant just engineered their own products. And 
at that time, when we looked at, we had background. I had a company before. My co-founders had years of manufacturing. We printed with NASA. We looked at industrial printers. They were pretty expensive. And the desktop printer and their maker movement, you know, was kicking off at the time with the open source printers, but they were often really small. You know, they were limited to things you could only hold in your hand. So we started to to talk about, you know, what would it look like to help provide an open source 3D printer that was an industrial machine that could take open materials and with this vision to eventually print from waste. In my last job with NASA, I, I had the honor of being the social entrepreneur in residence for NASA headquarters. And when I started asking communities we've met and aid organizations and groups worldwide what people would make, we learned that the objects they wanted to make were um, at the human scale. And so we came up with this idea for what we called a toilet-sized mm. 3D printer. It was benchmarked <laughs> around the dimensions of a composting toilet I really okay. fell in love with. And that was the goal that could um, that was under $10,000 because we learned that was the purchasing threshold for a lot of um, uh, credit cards and, and, and federal agencies. And um, to go a step further, you know, we had this vision to eventually allow it to print from garbage. Wow. Okay. How is it that no one had built a large, a toilet-sized 3D printer that was accessible? Because people had built some big 3D printers in industry, right? Like if you had a lot of money and people had built smaller ones for home, you know, there was no one else doing it? Like, or did you do it better and the other competitors went away? You know, what happened there? I'm convinced that maybe no idea is original, but um, I'm sure there were, there were makers that had in their garage, but there were not drawings um, for open materials that were, you know, open source at that form factor and then with materials at that price point. Some people had done it like through the Hackaday and the maker community, but um, we would, you know, meet them at maker fairs. They'd have an in-house one, but it had, you know, taken them a lot of resources. And we really just thought we were going to contribute to that evolution and accidentally started a company in a factory in Texas. How many of your customers, Gigabot, well, I should say Re3D, you know, all across all your machines, how many of your customers are professional organizations versus schools and serious amateurs and things like that? How many are using it for, you know, where is the, the distribution? To be transparent, I think there's pre and post COVID. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would say, you know, especially as we get into the larger form factors and even the the printer that can print from pellets or waste because it enables more advanced materials, we tend to support more of that industrial segment and those insights, which is mainly it used to be up until six months ago, about twenty five percent were universities, twenty five percent were manufacturers, and we continue to track and scale with like bigger and bigger brands and enterprises. Um, as they standardize and standards change. Let me just go to a different subject for a moment. When you watch all these people developing products, what advice would you have? If our listeners, someone listening to this podcast is a product developer themselves, which is our target audience, you know, mm-hmm. what would you want to tell them? What do you want to scream at half the people you see? Like, is there some advice you'd have? Is there some factor that you think the best ones do that the average ones don't? Something like that. Um, I would say... One thing that has been really cool about 3D printing in general, whether you use a gigabyte or uh, another platform, is um, it can really be an accelerator for rapid prototyping, especially if you know you think you may have to make a mold or um, you're looking at high volume production later. One thing that's been interesting, you know, as a social enterprise, we, we really like the high touch with our customers, and you know, we visit a lot of customers' houses and businesses on site when we're traveling. And I don't know where this fact came from. 
but I've heard more than one customer say it, which I always find intriguing that does product development. They will often say when they put a printer, even if it's a desktop next to the designer or the engineer's desk, or there's one in a shared, you know, maker lab, or even one on the factory floor to help troubleshoot if a line goes down to break apart. What they found is that the vision for what you will make changes as soon as you start to print it. And they will often say within the first three layers, I have found a way to improve my idea. So just starting to see like the outline and the form lay down inspires an idea for an improvement. And one thing that I've learned as a maker is, and as an entrepreneur sometimes is, especially being community driven, you have this great idea in your head and, you know, you might convince, you know, your partner or your grandma or your friend to also celebrate it, but people are, your, your customer in the community relate to it from their own bias. And so there's something to be said for failure and quick failure and quick feedback and additive manufacturing really allows for that. So my advice for a product developer is get it out there because it's possible that, you know, a person, a city over a country over in an adjacent market may have some really interesting insights for you. And until you share it, you're not going to have the opportunity to grow from that. Wow. I love what you just said about the first three layers. That's so, I, you know, I've talked to people about 3D printing for, I don't know, 20 years. I've done a lot of it. I've just never heard anyone put it that way. I know the first layer is a really special one. And I'm not as experienced as you are, but I feel that when I watch the first layer go down, I know something about the quality of the machine. Just literally, you're saying before the part's even done, yeah. you're learning just by seeing it start to come to life. That's really cool. Actually, that reminds me, another question I wanted to ask you is, besides being big, besides your build volumes, what else makes your 3D printer special? Yeah, so it took us about uh, five years to get our sea legs and build out a factory. We manufacture in-house. We've remained open source and bootstrap. So it's, as you can relate to, it's a slow roll sometimes. About two, three years ago, started sharing our story more widely in this vision of print from garbage, which we knew was a challenge. And thanks to about $2 million from National Science Foundation and and some people who you know have voted for us in pitch competitions, as well as the... Um, the Global Creator Awards, the million-dollar um, prize that we work extended, we were able to modify our whole fleet of printers, which now go as big as your budget, um, to be able to print directly from pellets and or flakes, still at that affordable price point on that same form factor that's lightweight, it's open, it's modular. And the response to that's been so cool. Even during COVID, there's been an increased interest in that because a lot of uh, a lot of product developers that organizations are still in lockdown, right? So they have to manufacture out of their own house. They need to use advanced materials. Pellet printing enables that. It's a little bit more affordable oh, and accessible. Wait, actually, so that's a great answer. And I should have I should have known that, of course, because you mentioned it, that you're saying for pros, the pellet printing makes it easier to print. And did you just say advanced materials? Can you, can yeah. you elaborate on that? Just like, you know, we launched Gigabot and Kickstarter thinking of, you know, more of the development sector and and these unreached markets. And what we learned in one day is doctors at MD Anderson and nurses are problem solvers and people all over the world are and had a need for it. That's kind of what happened with the garbage printer. So that printer is called Gigabot X or Terabot X. With the pellet printers, what's interesting is what we didn't realize until we actually made it happen about 18 months ago is they print faster. And um, Titan Robotics, who's another player in the pellet printing space, has put together um, some good data on flow rate and speed. But you can flow more material through. Why can you print faster with pellet material rather than filament? Yeah. So, well, fun fact too, filament's made from pellets, which means that it had a second heating step. So 
there, there's a process that basically inherently only allows for some materials, and then it has to be extruded. And then once it's extruded and coiled and shipped, you put it on your machine, and then it has to, you know, some are pushed or pulled through. There's certain um, TPUs, if you will, so really soft materials that just are too noodly, if you will, and, and so they won't feed. But those materials might have a lot of value in, say, a healthcare setting. So there are certain materials that product developers get really excited about that are not in filament. But they are already in pellets because pellets make so many of the plastic objects around us and they're really accessible. There's also this opportunity to mix two materials, right? And that means Mm -hmm. you could basically be doing material science or advanced manufacturing on demand. So even during COVID, we've delivered a bot to Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And so kind of like Gigabot in, in the filament form, Gigabot X we've learned is kind of a whole different duck and, and it flows faster because you're not pushing, you know, the, just for the physics of it, the way you have to heat I see, and pull, I see. you can flow really quickly. We have three heating zones that allow for that. Well, it also gives you great control over your materials too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're saying you can get advanced materials out of combination. That is so cool. The other thing is I really encourage people, whenever I hear about new printers, I'm like, the printer's one thing, the materials are so often where it's at in producing great results and great... You know, That's the driver you know, for the market right now. Thanks for sharing that. That's just a really interesting tip because my guess is a lot of people out there know about filament-based 3D printing and don't really think about the potential of pellets, you know, and you're bringing that more mainstream. That's fantastic. I'd cut you off to talk about the speed. You said the advantages sure. of pellets were speed and now you've gone through range of material. Yeah, what's unique about our pellet printer, our compression screw, and our heating zones and form factor is we did it because we wanted to print from ground up garbage, which we're now doing. So you could not even pelletize something if you just have what we call regrind or flake. Um, and again, we're still learning. There's there's some we can do well. There's some we got a long way to go with the community on. But but you could print directly from say a ground up water bottle or um, regrind maybe from your local waste processor. Let me ask you, you, as an entrepreneur, you remind me, you're also you're not just a product developer, but you're a woman entrepreneur. And I'm really curious if you could fill us in on what that's meant to you as an entrepreneur. Has it been a fight? You know, have you been discriminated against? Does that resonate with you or not as much? I think probably for me, you know, I'm like this eternal optimist and, um, and I'm very mission driven and my co-founder and others would probably say I'm pretty stubborn. So I wonder if I've been maybe less sensitive to it. Also, despite this being my second company, both times we were bootstrapped. And I think a lot of the discussion right now with gender in uh, startups is around uh, raising capital. So I have been fortunate that, you know, a lot of even the grants that we apply to or the competitions we compete in are really striving to be more gender neutral or to have even special opportunities for women. So um, that's probably been a benefit there. I would say as our customer base becomes increasingly sophisticated, you know, Fortune 50s and whatnot, I am aware as our the women on our team, you know, since day one, just inherently, I don't know why, our company has always been 50-50. Like our drafter is, you know, a woman, our lead builder is a woman. But yesterday I had an interview. We were really um, humbled to win the CTA Company of the Year Award for 2021. And 
in the interview, they're like, it's so rare to have a woman win this award. And so what I have realized is that when I look at what we call emerging technologies and advanced manufacturing, I see a lot of females. And I wonder if there's a second conversation about some of this, this new technology that's emerging so quickly and, you know, with it now being taught in schools where there isn't as much of a bias because I know when we hire and in our field, people are always quick to say like, what have you made? What are you doing? And it's less about like who you are and your background and some of the other questions you might traditionally get or what school you went to. We wear a flight suit. So, you know, when I go on stage, I'm not wearing a skirt and it's less about me being a woman, but more about how are this kick-ass team that, mm. you know, spun out of NASA doing great stuff. Cool. Um, and we're normalized. And I think that's really exciting. So um, I think I tend to run in the, the echo chamber of, of those circles where I see a lot of people like me and of different backgrounds. And I think it's really cool. Um, and I hope that continues to grow as business models shift. Well, it's great to hear. And then do you have any perspective? You know, there's a lot of discussion about other forms of diversity, particularly mm-hmm. racial diversity, and how are we going to get more black people yeah. into leadership positions in product development where I think they're particularly underrepresented? Sure. You know, as you, as you were saying, and we're, we're in a particularly white male centric part of the world. Anyway, do you have any thoughts on that? Are there any programs that you're actually involved in or doing or any that you see in any of the other companies that you'd say mm-hmm. would be interesting to all of us on how to advance on that? So there are a number of companies, including ourselves, that are trying to think about how to bridge that gap and um, in different populations. And in Austin, a lot of our efforts have been around um, the Latinitas, like they kill it, man. Those those ladies you know, are doing awesome stuff Latinitas. in robotics. I don't know what, <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? What are they called? Latinitas? Latinitas, yeah, they're a really cool organization. Um, it's, it's quite sizable. Um, and then, you know, robotics clubs are a great way too. There's some that are very targeted at specific populations. Our teammate, Charlotte, really thinks a lot about this problem set. She's our community ambassador and she's looking for feedback. So if you have ideas, please share it. But we try, I think it's incumbent on all of us right now to connect with, you know, whether it's a minority institution, elementary through secondary, to get plugged into their initiatives, to share what we're doing, to offer modules, kits um, to help encourage people and mentor them in their technology career so that they're supported and they know what resources are out there to help them achieve their goals. And I think there's a second opportunity to focus on trade skills. So in addition to, you know, there's disparity in leadership and manufacturing in particular, there's so few people in the U.S. that would want to work with their hands and so few mm-hmm. programs that the competition for the talent that is attracted to that is fierce. And oil and gas and aerospace will pay a lot of money. And that makes it very difficult for manufacturing companies to sure. exist in the U.S. And, and that makes the ability then to get people with that background that will be rising leaders to get those skill sets. So I think anything we can do around vocational training, you know, obviously I'm biased coming from Detroit, trade skills, getting people to work with their hands, to share their ideas, regardless of education, regardless of background, and to amplify that is really, really critical. Well, you know, again, another insight that was right in front of my nose there, but you call out is it's not just getting people to go major in computer science in college or even in mechanical engineering. It's getting trade skills back. And that's how I got started in this industry. You're in the Air National Guard, and I'm going to say you're a captain, which is 
sounds pretty darn impressive to me. And I really want to know more about what you do in the Air National Guard, if you'd share with us. I do live in Texas and split my time between Texas and Puerto Rico, but I'm a guardsman in the um, Mississippi Air National Guard, um, which has just been really great and also has exposed me to, you know, states and demographics that are just overlooked, that have so much raw talent. Um, Yeah, so in that unit, we have a really unique function in that we support disaster response in North America. So when First Air Force, which is at Tyndall Air Force Base, when they get hit by a hurricane, which happened, or overwhelmed in their day-to-day operations, they use our guard team to help supplement that 24-7. So that puts RE3D in a unique position. Um, In 2017, we were hit by three hurricanes in in Houston and in Puerto Rico. And then um, I was also involuntarily activated to support them as well. And then turns out pandemic response is now part of that as well. So I've been on orders, you know, over those last six months to help with um, the COVID response. And then, you know, also, you know, trying to figure out what's going on with, with the company and, and the market in parallel. And I'm on prepare to deploy orders, you know, again today for hurricanes that are coming. And then there's some in the Gulf and we almost had a hurricane hit Houston last week. So um, it is a really weird dynamic leading a company, but I think there's something really special about it. And after World War II, you know, so many companies were, were founded by veterans or reservists, you know, probably your local dry cleaner or grocery store has an access to it. And I think in traditional business models, as people ascended in their careers, it just made it impossible to also serve. But um, I hope, uh, you know, if anyone's listening and, you know, they want the free healthcare, reduced healthcare, or has wanted a way to to support their community, you know, it can be done. I'd love to talk to you offline. And it's a real privilege to be able to do both. So how has your experience in the Air National Guard affected your business life? Being, you know, the CEO of a 3D printing company um, and also a captain in the Air Force, I felt like there should be resources for other Air Force makers to share um, 3D designs to problem solve without needing an external vendor like 3D3D as, you know, Spark Cells and Innovation is standing up within the military so there's a platform called Air Force Maker. It's kind of like the Thingiverse for airmen right now that we're exploring. And to recruit um, participation, I reached out to the captain school. And for five-week cycles, we have this research elective for captains who are in captain school to um, design solutions for other airmen. And what's been interesting is, you know, we always get a couple women and a few guys, uh, you know, about 10 guys or plus um, each cycle. And many of the women have not learned how to design in the swimming experience as well um, on the civilian side. And they're always like a little bit nervous and insecure about learning. But I share links to, you know, all the, you know, Onshape and Onshape competitors for resources to get started. And Onshape has quickly become the favorite um, because of the ability to use your phone and that like collaboration, you know, around the design aspect, which I think women really like being part of a team. I think in general, that's a, that's a hmm. trait we have. And um, uh, time and time again, we've seen people who have zero design experience use Onshape on their phone and within five weeks create something internally that saves taxpayer dollars. So I think that's super exciting. And when we talk about diversity and innovation, even with institutions like the Air Force, I think there's a real place for platforms like Onshape to help create equity and real-time problem solving. Oh, Wow. You've made my day, Samantha, hearing that. And, I mean, I love hearing Onshape stories, but you, there were two things you just said that really warmed my heart. One was that we're disproportionately benefiting the women, you know, so we're helping 
the diversity of the community. We love hearing that. And two, that you said save taxpayer dollars, which implies to me that some of the work they've done was not just a prototype or an exercise, but actually went into production usage in some way. Yeah, that's the goal. They're solving real world problems that might get deployed or go on for certification. I've done it myself and made a little jig that could potentially save a unit $100,000. But our market for V3D is definitely resonates with people trying to make functional objects. That is awesome. Well, you made my day with that great story about Unshape. I love hearing (laughs) it. I could talk to you all day. I'm just going to ask one more question before we wrap up. Your title is co-founder and catalyst. Is that right? Yeah. So I haven't met anyone. I've met people who are co-founders, but I've never met anyone with the title of catalyst. What does that title mean? Yeah. So uh, maybe it's because I'm like everyone's number two, you know, I help you put the square peg in the round hole and to work with the community to make cool things. You're um, everyone's number two. <laughs> Does that mean that you run the whole thing and you're really modest about it? Is there anyone at Re3D who has the title CEO or president or something, or are you the closest thing to that? I am the CEO and president on the legal paperwork, but um, yeah, I referred myself as Catalyst with Matthew, who's our CTO. You know, that is really cool. So you are the CEO of the company, but you choose to identify as Catalyst. And you said in a um, kind of modest way that probably attracts great people and following your culture of humility. I did my reading on you and I heard you talk about (laughs) culture of humility. I'm going to close on this point. You have in Samantha, um, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. And I hope everyone appreciates the cool products, you know, the giant 3D printers, but also your story as a person, but also your humility as a CEO and president to not even, even when I'm trying to corner you on it, you won't admit that that is your job. That is just very cool. So Samantha, thank you again for joining us today. John, thanks so much for having us. Truly an honor. And to our listeners, thank you all for tuning in. You can learn more about Re3D at re3d.org. And you can learn more and listen to other episodes of Masters of Engineering or subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, Spotify, or really wherever you like to find your podcasts. And I love hearing what you think. So please make sure you leave a review of this episode and tell me what you thought of Samantha and her story. And follow me on Twitter at Jay Hirschdick. That's it for today. See you next time on Masters of Engineering.